Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, musicians. Thank you to these two brothers who have encouraged us greatly this morning. I uh, would like for us to talk together about our fear and our faith, and most importantly, what Jesus has to say uh, about both of those things. So let me pray for us. Father, we uh, come to you with our hands as open as we possibly can make them, and we ask that you would meet us in exactly the places where we are this morning. Father, we ask that you would meet those of us who have faith and those of us who don't, that you would meet those of us here this morning who feel really close to you and ready to hear from you, and those of us who feel far from you because we've been running, or you seem quiet. Father, meet those of us who are here that aren't even certain the reasons for being here. Father, show us the grace of Jesus, the one who wears our flesh, who is seated at your right hand right now, praying for people like us. Show us his love. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to read from Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. Uh, you can uh, follow along in your Bible if you'd like, or you can just listen as I read from the end of Mark 4. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. So a few weeks ago, uh, my wife, Allison, and I went out to dinner, and about 20 minutes after we started eating our dinner, uh, another couple was seated at the table next to us. The, this couple was older than us, and uh, they were not married. And uh, it was one of those restaurants where the tables are really close to each other, so we could overhear basically every word of their conversation. And I confess that it, we loved hearing every word of their conversation because they had uh, that awkward getting to know each other vibe coming off of them. Uh, they had obviously just recently started seeing one another. So they sat down and after they ordered drinks, they dove right into the latest political headlines. Uh, and it was fun for us at least <laughs> to hear them feel each other out and make sure that they were saying what the other person, what they hoped the other person, I guess, would perceive was just the right mix of savvy smarts and ironic disinterest, right? You know what I'm talking about. 
I have personally been out of that game for like a quarter century. I'm so glad to be out of it, but that's where they were. So they talked about politics, uh, and then they switched to religion. <laughs> and just a few minutes into that, this is, this is what we heard. The guy said, when the aliens come to take over the world, I'm going to be so embarrassed that religion still exists. <laughs> when the aliens come to take over the world, I'm going to be so embarrassed that religion still exists. I'm not making that up. I can't make that up. But as the conversation went on, it became clear that uh, his main point of reference was not religion in general, uh, but Christianity in particular, the stuff that we believe. And so I listened to them talk about it. I listened to him attack our faith, and my mind started racing. And I was trying to keep up conversation with my wife, who was also listening a little bit to them, and I started having these fantasies in my mind. I started having these fantasies about leaning over to him and asking this guy, hey, uh, do you think you'd be embarrassed uh, about the abolition of slavery? Do you think maybe you'd be embarrassed about the end of apartheid? <laughs> I started fantasizing about asking him, do you, do you think you'd feel uh, ashamed uh, about the establishment of public hospitals and orphanages? Do you think you'd feel ashamed over things like civil rights or any number of other things, innumerable things, good things that are hard to imagine without the involvement and in many cases the initiation of Christian people? But mostly, I wondered about these aliens. <laughs> You know, what did they look like? Where did they come from? And why had they come? And what would they feel? What would these aliens feel about coming all this way <laughs> to find faithful Christians all over the world, just happy to know that they're loved, happy to know that they have been forgiven, and doing the best they can with what they have to love God and to love their neighbors. Because that's what they would find. <laughs> that's what they would find when they came because the church is not going anywhere. And that's not because Christians are such a sterling lot of folks. That is for sure. You know why it is? It's because the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead <laughs> and exalted him to his right hand and together they sent the Holy Spirit to people like us. The church's life and health is based on God's power and God's faithfulness and not ours. And that includes this little teeny tiny sliver of the vineyard that we labor in. The life and health of the church is based on God's power and faithfulness and not ours. And that's not going to change if the aliens find out we exist. So I know that. And theologically, uh, I confess that. 
and standing here in front of you, I believe that, and you probably do too. But you also probably know why I had those fantasies in my head too. It's not because I'm a super savvy apologist. It's not because I really cared about that guy in that moment. You know why I was harboring those telling a guy off fantasies. It's because hearing the kind of stuff that he was saying makes me afraid. <laughs> it makes me afraid. My first reaction was fear, fear of irrelevance, fear of looking like an idiot, fear of losing something, you know, like status or respect or who knows what else. <laughs> I was afraid. And as much as I wish that I could stand here and say that I'm immune to the fear and to the anxiety that's roiling around in our culture right now, I'm not. As much as I'd like to fake that I don't feel fear and fearful sometimes in my church, as much as I want to fake that I don't feel fear sometimes in my presbytery, even in my own family, I am not, I'm not fooling anyone. And maybe you can relate. Well, there was a couple guys in the boat who could relate that day. <laughs> maybe you caught that when we read the story together. I mean, they're pretty afraid when that storm envelops them out on the sea. They're pretty afraid. They thought they were going to die. But the fear they feel then is nothing like the terror they feel at the end of the story, staring down Jesus, who is not the man they thought he was. You could almost feel the hair raising on their arms and the back of their necks as they look at each other and him and ask themselves, who in the world is this? Mark says literally they, they feared a great fear. And so Jesus has a couple questions for them in the unnerving stillness of the boat. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So this story has something to say to people like you and me about our fear and about our faith and about what Jesus has to say about them. So Mark sets the scene by telling us that it was evening and that Jesus uh, wanted the disciples to get in the boat and go across to the other side. Now they're probably in a town on the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. Uh, and that's not insignificant then that they're going to the other side. Some of you know, because you're Bible nerds, that the other side is no longer Jewish territory. It's probably not a place even the fishermen in the group would have frequented, and no one in that boat, no one in that boat would have lived there, not in a million years. So they're leaving in the evening, maybe at nightfall. Mark doesn't make a big deal about it, but I think he's sprinkling in a little foreshadowing here. They're heading into the unfamiliar. They're heading into the unknown. They're doing it in the evening, maybe at night. Something is out there. And there's this other thing that Mark doesn't make a big deal about, other than to just include it in the details and the setup of the story. He says that other boats were with him. It's not just Jesus and the disciples who uh, break free from that larger crowd that's been listening to Jesus, there's others with them too. And I love that image of a small handful of boats pulling off together. <laughs> they're gonna go where he goes, even if they don't know where they're headed. 
or what it will get them into. People, that's the life of faith. <laughs> that's the life of the church. That's our life together. We'll go where he goes. So back in the mid-80s, uh, archaeologists unearthed a uh, almost intact first century fishing boat like the one that Jesus and the disciples were in. It was about 27 feet long and seven and a half feet wide. I'm not a seafaring guy myself, so I don't really have a frame of reference for what riding in a boat like that under normal conditions would be. But I'm uh, assuming, guessing that it was pretty sturdy and substantial. I'm also told that the Sea of Galilee is a relatively small body of water. It sits in a natural basin that makes it really susceptible to wind. It gets turbulent and choppy there pretty quickly. There's, of course, another thing which might help us understand this story a little better. And that's the fact that in the Old Testament and in lots and lots of other ancient literature, the sea is often portrayed as a malevolent place, untamable and often dangerous. It was used in an as an image of, of chaos and disorder in the Old Testament, the opposite of the peace in which God created the world. So there's some fear there. But I doubt that the sturdiness of the boat and I doubt that the uh, legendary foreboding of the sea was on anyone's mind when they set out uh, that evening. But I, I think maybe that stuff started crossing people's minds when, as Mark tells us, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat. Almost immediately, Mark says, the boat started filling up with water. Now, at least four of the guys on that boat are fishermen. This is the body of water on which they made their living. They had faced storms before, probably countless times, so you know that it's a bad storm when the leathered fishermen on the boat are so afraid. They thought that they were gonna die. That's their words. We're perishing, we're dying here. <laughs> it's obviously pretty bad. These grown men on the boat were afraid but not all of them, <laughs> not all of them on the boat were afraid. And it's with a comic touch that we learn of Jesus' condition and whereabouts at this time. <laughs> he is in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Some writers think that this meant that the back end of the boat, the stern had a platform on it for the helmsman to steer from and that Jesus is just underneath that little platform. I don't know if that's the case. It's not a big boat. He clearly was not in a sleeping cabin somewhere. <laughs> and I, I love <laughs> this picture of the sleeping Jesus. <laughs> Water splashing all over him, sloshing up against his sides, getting his clothes and his beard and his hair all wet, boat going up and down like a slow motion bronco. I mean, this is the only place in the New Testament where there's any reference to Jesus sleeping, and it is a doozy. <laughs> Mark wants us to see it as clearly as we can. He wants us to see it without any trouble. He wants us to revel in the absurdity of it. He wants us to revel in the beauty of it, in the sharpest possible contrast to all of the chaos and all of the fear and all of the disorder around him. Jesus sleeps. All of that stuff is absolutely inconsequential to him. 
and it, infuri it infuriates the disciples. And in fear and now anger, they wake him up. Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? There's nothing absurd about this to them, nothing beautiful about this to them. It is awful to them. Sometimes, you know, we call this situational irony because we know the big picture. Reading Mark from the very beginning, we know who Mark believes Jesus to be. We know who Mark wants us to believe Jesus is. For him, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And we get to see this from the very beginning. We get to see it unfold and see it unfold there in that boat. But the disciples, they're not anywhere close to that yet. No, nowhere close. To them, Jesus is this compelling galvanizing man from Nazareth. He's, he's the best preacher they've ever heard in their life. He is the most courageous man they've ever been around. He's done things that they never dreamed they would ever see with their eyes. He is, to them, just as they call him, teacher. And they are upset at his apparent indifference. And if we're being honest, and I hope we can be honest, <laughs> I mean, we who know exactly who Jesus is, we're pretty familiar with that feeling. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you felt this. And if you haven't, I don't mean to be gloomy, but if you haven't, you will. It's just a function of age and time and circumstance. That feeling that bubbles up into words like, where are you, God? Are you awake? Things are a mess for me down here and I don't know what to do. It feels like you're indifferent. It feels like you're sleeping on me. Don't you care? We're in a jam. I'm scared out of my mind. I don't know what to do. And all I get from you is silence. I mean, honestly, God's people have always been really familiar with this feeling. <laughs> A lot of the Psalms hover around this feeling, like Psalm 44. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Why are you hiding your face from us? These are the kind of words that you say when you're in over your head and you're afraid. And let's just say it, fear is a pretty normal human response when we feel out of control. So the fact that God's people can turn again and again to this place where they can ask him to wake up, um, where they feel like they can ask God to wake up, this, this should tell us a few things, okay? First, God is, is clearly okay with it. <laughs> He is okay with it. I don't know how that sounds to you, but I'm, I'm glad to know it. <laughs> uh, I mean, if God is really like he says he is in scripture, uh, then of course he is okay with it. He's big enough for you to yell at him. He can hear about what you're afraid about without falling apart. He can take 
our hardest, your hardest, most complicated, most fearful questions. I mean, he's okay with his people making up songs about those feelings and singing those songs to each other. So he's okay. But here's the other side of that coin. And I think it's the best side. I think it's the beautiful side, even if we don't always see it that way. If we're gonna wake God up with our fear-filled questions, then we better be ready for what happens when he wakes up. And he opens his eyes and he speaks to us. We need to be ready. So Mark tells us Jesus awoke <laughs> and right away he rebukes the wind and he says to the sea, peace, be still. The idiom, you know, that Mark uses for be still is be muzzled. And instantaneously all of this stuff happens. Jesus speaks and it happens. This is what we call a miracle. <laughs> What's left is just a great calm. Normally, under normal circumstances, uh, it would have taken several hours for that sea to calm down after it was choppy. But no, it's like glass. This is a miracle. These are not normal circumstances. They're extra normal circumstances. So it happens. And I'll tell you what, I, whatever the disciples thought was gonna happen in that moment, whatever their reason was for waking their teacher up, it definitely was not for this. <laughs> because if this is what they had been aiming for, if this is what they thought Jesus was gonna do, they would have said, thanks, Jesus, we, we knew it, you had it in you. <laughs> Instead of acting like they're in a horror movie and completely falling apart. They responded like they did because it was a visceral upheaval of everything they knew to be true about the world and about that man. And it would be amazing, wouldn't it, if that was the end of the story? <laughs> I mean, that would be a great story. The great calm ends this story. It's beautiful, it's amazing. <laughs> but it is not the end of the story. And this is where we get to the other side of the coin that I was talking about on the other side of asking God to wake up is being ready for what he says when he does. And this is what he says. We get back to those two questions. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What he sees is their fear. What he sees is their fear. That is what matters to Jesus. It's not the dumb little storm. It's not the fact that they woke him up from a nap. The only thing Jesus sees is the fear that exists in the hearts of these guys that he loves. And he sees the fear in your heart and in mine too and he moves in real close to give the good medicine. And the antidote for fear, as far as Jesus is concerned, is faith. Now people like us, we tend to think of the opposite of, of faith as being doubt. And sometimes that's true. But for Jesus, far more often, the opposite of faith is fear. 
right? Don't, don't be afraid, he says. Don't fear. He says it to Jairus after his daughter died. <laughs> don't fear, only believe. That beautiful woman, that beautiful woman that we sang about last night, that woman who crept up on Jesus, afraid that she was going to get caught touching his clothes, she falls down in front of Jesus in fear and trembling. And what does Jesus say to her? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Old Peter. <laughs> Old Peter in another seafaring escapade. <laughs> Old Peter in the fourth watch of the night, he thinks he's seeing ghosts, but it's just Jesus strolling along, and he invites, he invites Peter in, stroll with me, Peter. Peter jumps out of the boat and does, but he sees the waves, and he is afraid. And Jesus grabs him by the wrist and looks him in the eye, and what does he say to old Peter? Oh, you of little faith. I'm just saying that Jesus likes to move towards people like you and me when we're afraid. He moves to people like us when we're afraid. And then he tells us what really matters. So when Jesus wakes up, what he asks the disciples for is their faith. Just their faith. In particular, he's asking them to place their faith in him. And this is important. This is important because Jesus is not saying, hey guys, turn up your faith to 11. He's not saying, hey guys, what you need is to have super strong faith. <laughs> He's not saying, listen, you guys, you need to have this sterling, strong, crazy kind of faith like the missionaries that the Bible college students will read about one day. <laughs> He didn't say anything like that. He just wants them to place their faith, however weak and thin it is, in the right object. And it's him. It's him. And if they would, their fear would abate. And this is the place where you and I find ourselves in this story. I have my own things that I'm fearful of in life. And I'm guessing that you do too. You know, our, our culture, man, this time that we're living in is a time of high anxiety and high fear, I think. Fear sometimes feels like it's mixed in with the oxygen that we breathe. It's like a currency in our world, fear. Fear is like this low-level hum. It's always there. It's always present, this low-level hum that we hear all of the time in our politics. It's a low-level hum <laughs> that drives how we use social media and how we think about social media and how righteous we want to be on social media. Fear is this low-level hum that makes its way into our churches and into your ministries and mine. I mean, I've never done this, but I bet if I made a list of the top five things I wish I had never done in my pastoral life, I wish I could take them back, I bet four out of five of them I did because I was afraid. Afraid of something. Fear, that low-level hum that the enemy 
just uses in our families. <laughs> Are my kids going to be okay? Or even if they're not okay, will they just act right in front of the people they need to act right in front of? <laughs> Fear. I think we did some stuff driven by fear uh, at our last General Assembly. I mean, I know I did. I wish I could say that I've never acted, that I've never spoken out of fear at my presbytery, but I have. Maybe you have too. <laughs> and when we act out of fear, it's a mess. When we act out of fear, we start blaming other people, we start coercing other people, we start controlling other people, we start shaming other people into things. And when we act out of fear, we become furious at them when they don't comply. When we act out of fear, we caricature other people and we parody other people and we try to eat them up with gossip. We do things that don't make any sense when we're afraid. Like cats in a corner, we scratch, we claw, we bite at the people who are coming to us even if they're coming to us in deep love. Fear makes us close down our borders to the refugee. Fear makes us refuse to welcome the stranger. Fear keeps us awake at night. It makes us bitter. It makes us yell. It makes us less. We were not made for it. We have not been made for fear. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm, in a second or two, I'm just going to be quiet for like five or ten seconds. And in that silence, here's what I want you to do, it's what I'll be doing. I just want you to think about the thing you're afraid of right now. And I want you to think about what that fear has driven you to do or might be driving you to do. Okay, so let's just be quiet for 10 seconds. Okay, obviously I don't know what you were thinking of, but I do know this. <laughs> whatever it was, whatever it is for me, here's the thing I want you to hear because it's absolutely true. Jesus calls you to something more and something better than all of that. <laughs> he calls you to faith in him. <laughs> He is Lord over the chaos. He is Lord over the darkness. He is Lord over uncertainty, winds, waves, the great deeps. They're like the playground to him. <laughs> he makes this lazy, loopy cast, and he draws Leviathan out of chaos with a hook. So he, he's got whatever it is that you're boating through right now. He's definitely, definitely got it. He's definitely got whatever it is that we are boating through together. Now, of course, it's not the case. Of course, it's not true that he removes all of the storms for us like he did with the disciples that day. 
but it is absolutely true that he is fully present with us, fully present with us in love in the middle of all of those storms. Those are his words. I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, that is a fear obliterating promise. And as good as that is, I wanna tell you something, and it's great. <laughs> it's not even the most compelling reason that he is the right object of our faith. <laughs> it's not even the most compelling reason. The most compelling reason, the most beautiful reason that he is the right object of our faith is that he loves us with a deep, mysterious, unbreakable love. <laughs> and we know that's true because he showed us it's true. Frederick Buechner has this incredible line about Jesus waking up in the boat that day. Buechner says, when they, woke him, when they woke him up, he opened his eyes to the howling storm and to all the other howling things he must have known were in the cards for him. And church, I'm just saying that's how we know he loves us because he happily walked into all the howling things for us. He gladly walked into the storm and chaos and uncertainty and hate and violence. He gladly walked into it. He allowed himself to be crushed by it and killed by it. He gladly took all of the sinful acts fueled by fear that I've ever done and that you've ever done all the sinful acts fueled by fear that, either, that, that you and I will ever do, he gladly took them on his back in order to be drowned by them, pushed under the waves by them. And he did it because he loves us. And that white hot love for people like you and me matched with his sovereign resurrection and ascension power over every malevolent thing that's ever been formed, that means he can be trusted. <laughs> He can be trusted. He is worthy of our faith. And to the extent that we do have faith in him, we will find our fear weakening and being replaced by a new power to live and by a sound mind and finally a power to love. That's the Jesus who the disciples are staring down in that boat and they don't even know the half of it yet. Who is this indeed? Let me pray for us.